0: Good morning again. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. We have uh, started going through the book of Acts a couple of weeks ago now. We are in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 36 this morning. Before we uh, read that text, Acts 2, 22 to 36, let's pray together. Our Father, we, we... pray uh, once again for your mercy, uh, for your spirit to be poured out upon us. Uh, We confess that our hearts are dull, our, our minds lack understanding. We are so slow to believe and to receive what we find in your word, and we need your spirit. We need your spirit to humble us, to soften our hearts, to open us up Uh, to enable us not only to understand, but to receive and believe the Scriptures. And so we pray that you would work in us to that end this morning. Most of all, we pray that you would work in us to exalt your Son, uh, the Lord Jesus. As we hear about Him and His work, we pray that that He would be preeminent in our lives and in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 2 whom you crucified. Well, we live in an age that is filled with self-help books and infomercials. You know, you, you find books that are about the five or the seven or the 10 or the 15 steps to a better you. You find infomercials about the, the Thighmaster or Ginsu Knives or the Clapper or the George Foreman Grill or whatever other new thing has finally come out that's going to change your life forever. And that's the way these things are always presented, right? That, that, that these things are able to solve all your worldly problems if only uh, you can pay in five installments of 1995 or something like that. And yet, with all the progress that we have made, which may or may not be seen in those types of things, uh, one problem that no product has overcome, uh, one sickness that no doctor has been able to cure, one enemy that no army can defeat, is death. Peter, on Pentecost, however, proclaims a message of one who has defeated death. Death could not keep its hold on him, Peter says. And if that is true, then Peter's message is is worth listening to. Right? It, it is better than any infomercial. Uh, it is more enduring than any self help book. This morning we're going to, to I am going to preach about Peter's preaching. I'm going to give a sermon on a sermon. And, and you might think, a sermon on a sermon? I mean, that's like twice as bad, twice as boring, twice as irrelevant. Why in the world would we want to do that? Who cares what Peter preached? Well, I, I think we should care. Uh, if you are a Christian, you should care, because here is, is the first sermon of the Christian era. An early summary of the Christian message. The the first thing someone preached after the resurrection, aside from Jesus teaching to the disciples, out in the world, what's the first message that was preached? This one. And it's helpful to look back at this first sermon and uh, allow it to correct us. To allow it to, to speak into our lives and our hearts. Have we stayed faithful to that message? Have we strayed? I think you should also care if you're not a Christian, uh, because if if what Peter says is true, that means that death itself has been undone. Death itself has been undone. His message is not just relevant for his hearers 2,000 years ago, right, but it's relevant for us today. We need to listen. So we're going to look at Peter's uh, message. We're going to look at how Peter preached, right? Being filled with the Spirit. We're going to look at what Peter preached. He preached on the Old Testament scriptures. We're going to look at who Peter preached—Jesus as the resurrected Lord, right? Peter preached by the power of the Spirit from from the Old Testament about Jesus. Uh, Specifically, not what Jesus taught, uh, not what doctrines can be taken from Jesus per se, uh, not how people feel about Jesus, but what happened to Jesus. Peter preaches history. Peter, being filled with the Spirit, explains the Old Testament as it points forward to what Jesus did in time and space. So we're going to look at the how and the what and the who, or as in your bulletin, there's an outline on the back of the bulletin. We're going to look at Peter's power, Peter's text, and Peter's message. First Peter's power, how Peter preached, right? By the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, You may remember that this is the the morning of Pentecost. The disciples had gathered together. They were probably praying, as was their practice. And there's this great sound, like a mighty rushing wind, that comes in and fills the house, and tongues of fire appear on each one of their heads. And they're all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues. And people heard this uh, commotion, and they marveled. They marveled because each one heard the disciples speaking in his own language, And this was amazing to them because uh, the people uh, knew, apparently, that these were just Galileans. They they were nobody special. How is it that they were speaking in so many different languages? And some marveled at this. Others mocked. Verse 13 tells us, uh, uh, others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. You know, what's all this ruckus? Well, they must be drunk. That's got to be the only excuse, the only reason. Peter gets up, though, kind of taking it all in stride, and he says, no, no, uh, we're not drunk. Uh, It's only 9 in the morning. After all, how drunk could we be? Uh, No, we're not filled with wine. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter's actual sermon doesn't really begin until verse 22, which is where we began reading this morning, but the first 14 verses are the answer to this question, what's going on? And people are speaking in various tongues, proclaiming the works of God, what's happening? And Peter's answer is, in fulfillment of Joel's prophecy, which he quotes, we are filled with the Spirit. Now, uh, the sign of being filled with the Spirit throughout Scripture is speaking about Jesus. Speaking in various tongues is unique. It does happen a couple of times in the book of Acts. But speaking about Jesus is what happens every time the Spirit fills someone. Spirit fills them and they speak. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. When the Spirit fills us to overflowing, our mouths speak about Jesus. You see it in Acts chapter 4, verse 8, which tells us, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke to the Jewish leaders about Jesus or Acts 4:31 when the church had prayed they were all filled with the holy spirit and continued to speak the word of god with boldness or Acts 13 verses 9 and 10 Paul filled with the holy spirit looked intently at him and said See the filling of the the filling of the spirit leads to speaking the message of god And this uh, accords well with Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 10, uh, that when the apostles would speak before others about the kingdom, it would be the Spirit of their Father in them doing the speaking. And here's the point. The point is that, that the noise that some interpreted as drunkenness was due to the filling of the Spirit, who overfilled their hearts so that they spoke about the mighty works of God in the cross and in the resurrection and Peter, too, uh, being so filled, he, he got up to speak about the same thing. What that means is for us, at least in part, right, if you want to speak about Jesus with boldness, pray, pray to be filled with the Spirit. And being filled with the Spirit is actually a command in Scripture. Did you know that? It's in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. And it says, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with with the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in Luke 11, verse 13, if you then who are evil, you gotta, you gotta love how Jesus speaks to us, right? <laughs> uh, if, if you then who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the mark of being filled with the Spirit, not speaking in different languages that happened a couple times in Acts, Uh, but speaking about the mighty works of God, right? Speaking about Jesus, we would say sharing the gospel, telling other people about the cross and the resurrection. Now, there there are two things to add to this. Uh, The first is those who heard the disciples speaking in language, in in different languages, say this in verses 7 and uh, 8. They were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Now, as I read that verse, I, I thought of this question. How did they know that they were Galileans? I, I guess we don't really know how they knew. Um, here, here's my guess. I admit that it's speculation, but it's reasonable. Uh, how did they know that they were Galileans? Well, maybe they spoke with a Galilean accent. I mean, that's all they, all they knew about these people is what they heard, right? They heard them speaking in various languages, but they knew they were Galileans. Maybe they spoke with their Galilean ang- accents, right? So the Spirit empowers them to speak in other languages, but nevertheless, they speak with their own tongue, which means they speak with their own accent. Here, here would be the lesson I would take from this, if any is to be taken, that when the Spirit fills you to speak of Christ, You do that in a way unique to you, right? You still speak with your Galilean accent. And so pray for the filling of the Spirit, that He would use us to speak His grace in Jesus in ways that make sense for us, but are powered by the Spirit of God. If we speak, if we are to speak of Jesus, it must be by the Spirit. In ways specific to us as individuals, the Spirit fills us, but it's still we who speak. We tell others about God's grace in the cross. Second, let me me point out something else that's going on here. The same Peter, interestingly enough, the same Peter who gets up on the day of Pentecost and speaks with boldness, being filled with the spirit. When talking about spiritual gifts in 1 Peter, uh, he recognizes that not everyone is given gifts for speaking. So 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 through 11, uh, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And so the question comes to mind, at least it comes to my mind, is speaking about Jesus, this exclusive sign of being filled with the Spirit, or not? Uh, is it speaking, is speaking one sign and serving another, right? There are two different gifts there mentioned in 1 Peter, speaking gifts and serving gifts. And, and so on the one hand, I, I think we, we want to recognize fairly, as Peter does, that everyone is given different gifts by the Spirit. Right? Everyone is given different gifts, different abilities, different uh, strengths uh, and gifts to serve the body of Christ. That means some are going to be more prone to speak, right? Uh, uh, some will be teachers, some will be evangelists, some will be apologists for the Christian faith. Others will not be. And yet, I do think that as we are all filled with the Spirit, we will speak more. Uh, not necessarily more than the person next to us, but more than we would otherwise. As Paul says in Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, he says, "...walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time." Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Or again, Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and respect. It, it, see, the point is, as we have opportunity, we make the best use of the time, we give an account for the hope that is in us. We tell others why we believe what we do. And we speak with, to them with grace and with gentleness and respect. Now, what holds us back from this is, is normally two different things, right? On the one hand, uh, we, we aren't experiencing grace at work in our own lives. Uh, we have nothing to tell. I mean, even for Christians, right? I mean, sometimes we don't grasp what God has done for us in the cross, what he is doing in us by the Spirit, what he will do one day at Jesus' return. We, we, we don't see it. We don't get it. You know, sometimes I feel uh, as if God is absent. He, he's not present and at work in my life. And I wonder right, where he is. You know, the solution to this, though, is not, well, I'll just keep quiet. I hope nobody notices. Uh, the solution is to pursue Christ. Right? That seeking his grace more and more at work in your life. And as the work of Christ grips our hearts, we we will want to tell it to others, right? The more meaningful it is to us, the more we will want to share it. I mean, you know how it is, right? Any little thing, I mean, you go see a movie that you really love, the first thing you want to do is you want to talk about it with other people. Hey, you've got to see this new movie, it was really cool. You should have seen this part and there was this guy and this thing and this other thing happened, right? And then we tell somebody the whole movie and they get mad at us because we spoiled it. But you get the point, right? That's what we do. Something exciting happens to us and we wanna share it with those around us. As the grace of Christ grips our hearts more and more, we will will just want to tell people about what God has done for us in His Son. And if the work of Christ doesn't grip your heart, it doesn't mean, oh, I'm not a Christian, I'm a failure, I'm ruined. No, it just means, okay, pursue Jesus. Seek Him to be at work in your life. Ask Him to work in your life. Ask Him to open your eyes and your mind and your heart The good news of God's grace. So, on the one hand, uh, we often don't share the message of the gospel because it just hasn't gripped us. But on the other hand, what holds us back, maybe even more often, is fear. Fear. We're just afraid. Afraid we won't know what to say, afraid the other person will reject us, afraid of what they'll think. And yet, the scriptures tell us that God has not given us a spirit, capital S, given us a spirit of fear but of power and of love and of self-control, 2 Timothy 1.7. And so we need to pursue Jesus and pray. Pray to be filled with the Spirit. And then you will both have something to say as you grow in your understanding of the gospel and boldness by the Spirit to say it. So Peter's power. How did Peter preach? He was filled with the Spirit. If you want to be a witness to Jesus, right, pray for the same thing. The Spirit would fill you and empower you to speak with boldness. Second, Peter's text. What Peter preached, the Old Testament Scriptures. Uh, First, notice, Peter uh, preached not simply whatever was on his heart. Uh, He preached not from the New Testament, because there was no New Testament. Uh, Peter preached Jesus from the Old Testament Scriptures, why did he do that? Well, Peter understood that the Old Testament was God's inspired word, and Peter saw Jesus as fulfilling that Old Testament word. Peter saw David as writing about Jesus. You might read Psalm 16, you might read Psalm 110, and you might think, oh, this is about David. But, but Peter sees these, reads these Psalms, and he sees that these are about Jesus, that God has now fulfilled what he promised which of course means God is faithful. Uh, Though it may have taken a thousand years from David to Jesus, God kept his promises. What God revealed to David eventually came about. Our God keeps his promises. Sometimes when, when we're in the middle of our struggles, in the middle of strife, we wonder whether God is faithful. We wonder whether God can come through. We wonder what he's doing and where he is and when he's going to show up. God gave promises to David about the year 1000 B.C., promises of a descendant who would not see decay, and yet descendant after descendant of David died. And here comes Jesus, another descendant of David, and he too dies. And it looks like God's promise is going to remain unfulfilled yet again. But God... But God raised him from the dead. When all human hope was lost, then God acted. Now, I don't know what you're going through, but I can say this. God tends to work at the last minute. He tends to work at the last minute to overturn evil for his purposes. He tends to work at the last minute to use our bad deeds for his good ends. And he does that in a way that highlights his grace and power at work in our life. It's when all human hope is lost, When we can can take none of the credit, God often steps in to show his power and his mercy and his grace. And so let me encourage you, God is faithful. He cares for his children. God promised a descendant who would not taste decay. God fulfilled the promise of that uh, that psalm in Jesus. He He will fulfill his promises in your life as well, as we trust him. Well, Peter quotes uh, two Psalms here in particular, he echoes others, uh, which actually brings up a question that that I often think of about the Psalms. uh, A tangent, maybe, but an important question. And that is, as we read through the Psalms, are there a certain number of Psalms that are, quote, messianic? Maybe you've heard that phrase, the messianic Psalms. And uh, is it the case, as you read through the book of the Psalms, that that, uh, some Psalms are about Jesus, but other Psalms are about David, other Psalms are about Israel? Well, I think the best answer to that question, as you read through the Psalms, is that, on the one hand, all the Psalms are about David and Israel and others in the Old Testament, and all the Psalms are about Jesus. How can that be? Well, in part, because Jesus comes to replay the story of Israel to replay the history of David, but this time Israel is obedient and David reigns forever. And Peter can preach from the Old Testament because that's what Jesus taught him to do. Luke 24, verses 44 to 48, Jesus said to the disciples, "'These are my words that I spoke to you "'while I was still with you, "'that everything written about me in the law of Moses "'and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled.'" And then he opens their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning with, with Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. See, that the whole of the Old Testament scripture, Jesus says, the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, the whole of the Old Testament points forward to him. Now, I think we are often slow to believe this. Uh, even in the church, or even maybe slow to grasp what it really means. Uh, You know, we tend to neglect our Old Testaments, right? I mean, it is old, after all. It's the Old Testament. Everybody knows that new is better. That's why we sell just the New Testament, right? Because who needs the Old Testament, right? Just get to the good part. Um, I would challenge you, though, that if you don't know your Old Testament, you won't fully understand the new, Uh, The the New Testament records the climax of the story. You cannot comprehend the climax of a story unless you read the rise of the tension leading up to it. Jesus is the resolution to a story. If you want to understand Jesus, you need to to know the whole story. The, The father is faithful, right? And he sends his son, Jesus, to come to fulfill the promises, to complete the story, to resolve the tension, to kill the dragon, to rescue the princess, right? To fight the final battle scene, It's the Old Testament that prepares us for that climax, that gives us the language and the symbolism and the the narrative that leads us to the cross. Apart from that, we can't understand, at least not fully, we can't understand what Jesus is doing. So Peter's power, how did Peter preach? He was filled with the Spirit. Peter's text, what did Peter preach? He preached the Old Testament scriptures as they were about Jesus as they culminated in the cross and in the resurrection. Third, Peter's message. Who Peter preached, right? Jesus as the resurrected Lord. Uh, First, uh, note that this is Pentecost, right? This is the day of Pentecost. The Spirit has come with signs and wonders. Uh, People wanna know what's going on. Peter says God has sent the Spirit in fulfillment of the prophet Joel. And then, just when you expect Peter to launch into an explanation of the person and work of the Holy Spirit, Peter preaches a sermon not on the Spirit at all, but on Jesus. Verse 22, right? Men of Israel, hear these words Jesus of Nazareth. And then he goes on. The Spirit is not the topic of Peter's sermon on Pentecost. Why not? Well, this is what Jesus said the Spirit came to do in John chapter 15. Jesus says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The Spirit comes to point us to Christ. That's why the Spirit came. Where the Spirit is, there Christ is glorified. And we've already seen that in another way, right? That when the Spirit fills someone, what do they do? They speak about Jesus. And if, true, if Peter is truly filled with the Spirit, then what would we expect him to do? Speak about Jesus. What do we find Peter doing in Acts chapter 2? Speaking about Jesus. Peter's message is not primarily a message about the Spirit. Peter's message is about the risen Lord, the one whom the Spirit came to glorify. So on the one hand, Peter's message, as we look at it, it's not about the Spirit, but about Jesus. On the second hand, Peter's message is not about what Jesus taught, but about what Jesus did. Now, what Jesus taught is important. We read about it in the Gospels. There are four of them. Jesus does a lot of teaching in the Gospels. And yet that is not the focus of Peter's sermon. Verse 22. Jesus is attested to to by God by works and wonders and signs. Jesus, during his earthly life, performed miracles. Verse 23, Jesus was delivered up according to God's plan. Jesus was crucified by the hands of lawless men, that is Gentiles, people without the, the Jewish law. Verse 24, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That is, death could not keep its hold on him. Now, I mentioned a few weeks ago that when, as we go through the book of Acts, we see people preaching in the book of Acts, they leave out two things that we think are really key. Uh, No one ever talks about the love of God in the book of Acts. Uh, You'll search in vain to find it. It's just not there. And no one goes into a detailed theory of the atonement. They, They talk about Jesus' death and resurrection, but they don't go into the details of the atonement. Now, why would that be I mean, it seems really odd to us? It's not because Luke didn't believe that God loves us. It's not because Luke didn't have an understanding of the atonement, right? He connects the death and resurrection of Jesus with our forgiveness. But the focus of Luke is not on the theory, but on the history. The focus is on what Jesus did and then the implications now of that for us. And so Luke moves from what Jesus did in verses 22 to 24 to the Old Testament. Right? Makes perfect sense. Go to the Old Testament. You want to understand something? Go to the Old Testament. That's what Peter does. That's what Luke does. Uh, The Old Testament for Luke allows us to interpret Jesus' actions aright. So verses 25 to 28, uh, verse 25, for David says concerning him, concerning Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me. Twenty-five, a confidence which makes him glad despite opposition, despite trials, despite troubles. In fact, if you look back at Psalm chapter six, uh, Psalm sixteen, Psalm sixteen begins, "Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge." See, David essentially says, "Look, I know my life is difficult. Now there are troubles, or I wouldn't need refuge, I wouldn't need preserving if my life wasn't in danger." And David was was. In difficulty, he was hunted throughout his life, hated, uh, despised, defamed, rejected throughout his life by his brothers, by his father-in-law, by his sons, right? All of those closest to him are always out to get him. But David's confidence is in God. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. David knows that God will not abandon him whatever trials he goes through. And yet, Peter makes this move on Pentecost in verse 29. He says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. You see, David spoke so eloquently about God not abandoning his soul to the grave, about not letting his Holy One see corruption, and then David died and went into the grave and saw corruption. Now we have three options here, right? On the one hand, some would say, well, David was just speaking in hyperbole, right? We, sh- we shouldn't take his word so literally. When David said, you will not abandon me to the grave, he didn't actually mean you will not abandon me to the grave, he just meant you will protect me throughout this life. Hyperbole, okay, maybe. Second way of t- uh, taking this is that David was just wrong, right? Th- that God was not faithful to David. David entrusted himself to the Father and the Father abandoned him to the grave. Or third, you have Peter's view that David was a prophet. So verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. See, here's Peter's argument. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus shows that he is the Holy One spoken of by David. David's descendant who would sit on David's throne. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed King. This Jesus God raised up, and of that, we, the early disciples, especially the apostles, right? Of that, we are all witnesses. The apostles bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus as the Son of God in fulfillment of the plan of the Father. They saw Jesus risen from the dead. That's both the historical action, Jesus risen from the dead, and the eyewitness testimony. They saw it and spoke about it. The Old Testament then gives us the meaning of it. Jesus is God's Holy One, the Messiah, the Christ who was not abandoned to the grave. Now, for Peter, there's more, actually. He goes on, right? Uh, This present pouring out of the Spirit is proof that Jesus has ascended to the Father. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Pentecost, uh, the the pouring out of the Spirit was the sign on earth that Jesus had taken his throne in heaven. Pentecost is the sign on earth that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Psalm 68 uh, is an enthronement psalm. It's, It's about God's enthronement in Jerusalem as the ark went up to the temple and took its rightful place in the most holy place. Psalm 68 verses 18 and 19 say this, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord, who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Not only that, the psalm then goes on uh, about God, to say about God as he enters the holy place, that he then bestows gifts of power and strength on his people. So, uh, Psalm 68, verse 35 says, Awesome is God from His sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to His people. Blessed be God. This psalm is about the uh, procession of the ark into the temple in Jerusalem. But it's fulfilled in its fullness on the day of Pentecost, when Jesus, God in the flesh, ascends to the heavenly holy place, receives gifts from the Father, the gift of the Spirit, and then gives gifts to his people. That's what Peter says in verse 33. That's what happened. Jesus, on account of his victory over death, is given the spirit of the new age as kind of a celebratory gift for what Jesus had done, and then Jesus gives his spirit to his people on Pentecost. The coming of the spirit is the sign that Jesus has entered the holy place, has been given the gift of the spirit from the Father, and so now pours out that spirit as a gift on his people. And again, Peter Peter demonstrates that, he proves that by another Old Testament quote, Psalm 110, look at verses 34 and 35. For, again, for, David did not ascend into heaven, into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord, Yahweh, says to David's Lord, Jesus the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool what is Peter's conclusion? Verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, you know, that may not sound very radical to us today in a church, but to say that Jesus, the crucified one, was the Lord and the Christ was pretty radical in Peter's day. Jesus, the son of David, who has come to sit on David's throne. Jesus, this Jesus is Lord. Now, Lord can be just a title. It can mean, sir. But in the context, uh, we we can't say this is merely a term of respect here. Uh, Jesus himself used Psalm 110, in fact, to trip up his contemporaries. You may remember Matthew uh, 22. uh, Jesus says, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David, which was a good, solid answer, right? The son of David. But Jesus responded, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? See, in that culture, if you were the son, you were the inferior. You couldn't both be someone's son and their Lord at the same time. That didn't make sense. How can the Messiah be both David's son and David's Lord? The answer, of course, is that the son of David is also the son of God who has ascended to his heavenly throne, as Psalm 68 says. This is what gives the the last verse, you remember uh, from last week, the last verse of Peter's quote from Joel so much meaning. Peter quotes from Joel, saying, verse 21, "...and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord..." shall be saved. Now that prophecy is speaking of the Lord Yahweh. Go back to Joel, read through it, speaking of Yahweh the Lord. But what is the name of the Lord that people call upon in Acts? It's the name of Jesus. Acts 2:38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Acts 3, after healing a lame beggar, Peter says, His name, that is the name of Jesus, has made this man strong. Acts chapter 4, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. See, all, All who call upon the name of Yahweh will be saved. And what is the name of Yahweh by which we must be saved, according to Acts? It's the name of Jesus. This is where, by the way, this is where Jehovah's Witnesses get tripped up. Uh, you, you know uh, Jehovah's Witnesses uh, don't believe that Jesus is God, and um, but yet if you read through uh, the Jehovah's Witness Bible, their translation of the Bible, uh, they go through the Bible and they replace, every time you find the word Lord, they replace it with Jehovah. And I get that, right? I mean, Yahweh, Jehovah, Lord in all caps in your Old Testament. Uh, that's, a, that's a faithful rendering of the Old Testament, that's fair enough. Uh, but Jehovah's Witness also go through the New Testament and they change the New Testament text to put in Jehovah wherever they think someone took it out and replaced it with Lord. Of course, without any evidence that had, that ever happened, but it's beside the point. But, but where they change it is completely subjective. They do this in Acts 2.21, makes sense. Everyone who calls on the name of Jehovah will be saved. But guess where they don't put Jehovah in place of Lord? Acts 2.36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. But it is that Jesus as Lord on whose name we must call. We call on the name of Jesus. All who call on the name of Jesus will be saved. You see, uh, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, to the glory of God the Father. Even that, by the way, in Philippians uh, chapter 2 is a quote from the Old Testament about Yahweh, Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, Yahweh, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Do you know that Jesus is the Yahweh whom we serve? He is the one to whom the ends of the earth must turn to be saved. That's the theme of Isaiah 45. That's the theme of the whole book of Acts. How do we know that? Because the Father did not abandon him to the grave, nor let his Holy One see corruption, but exalted him to his right hand to the holy place. And Jesus, having taken the throne of heaven and earth, has, been, has given power and strength to his people by pouring out his Spirit upon the church. The historical events of the resurrection, the ascension, the enthronement, and the pouring out of his royal gift of the Spirit, these things testify to who Jesus is. He's not merely the Son of David. He is the Son of God. The apostles saw and bore witness to these things. Now briefly, uh, one takeaway, right? When When we share Jesus... When we talk about Jesus with those around us, uh, you know, oftentimes we want to be creative, we want to be relevant, uh, but we should not just share, uh, here's what Jesus did in my life. Or worse, here's what Jesus means to me. Now, don't get me wrong, I hope Jesus is at work in your life, we've already talked about that, and and I hope Jesus does mean something to you. But every religion and every cult and every philosophy has people who can give such a testimony. See how this product changed my life, and I was never the same again. Rather, we proclaim, here is what Jesus did. He died, he rose, he ascended, and he poured out his spirit. You know, Muhammad is said to have received uh, revelation from the angel Gabriel and written it down. Buddha was said to be a great teacher. What those people taught is the important thing to their followers, right? What Muhammad taught, submission, what Buddha taught. But Jesus did something. He died on the cross for sins. He rose from the dead as Lord and Christ, and he now reigns in heaven, offering pardon to all who believe in his name, and he will give the gift of his Holy Spirit. And now all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, as we're told in Acts 16, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we, we want to see and proclaim the risen Jesus in all of his glory. And so we pray for your spirit, Father. We pray that your spirit would fall on us, would open our hearts and minds, that we would see Jesus, see Jesus as the risen and ascended Lord, that we would see him not merely as the son of David, but as the son of God, who has been enthroned in heaven, over heaven and earth. Help us to see him. Help us to be excited about that, to be moved by that. To marvel at that. And to be so moved that we would talk about it with others. That we would tell others about the good news of the king who conquered death on our behalf. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.